Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey everyone, on this week's episode, I'm joined by Philadelphia Phantoms and RPI Hall of Famer Neil Little. An 11th round selection by the Flyers in the 91 entry draft, he spent his entire 10-year career in North America with the organization before heading overseas to finish out. He won two Calder Cups with the Phantoms, and despite dressing 40 or 50 NHL games, only had one start and two appearances. But he's a folk hero in Philadelphia, not just for his incredibly consistent goaltending, but also his willingness to mix it up with opponents. One of the true beauties of the game. Enjoy! I got an invite to try out there, went out there, and uh, didn't make the team. Maybe first cut. Didn't <laughs> Yeah, I thought I was pretty good first cut. I think they brought in a couple, a couple Europeans, and I was out the door. But I'd like to, I'd like to go back and see who actually made that team. But regardless, I went and played in Estevan, Saskatchewan, just by chance. I, I made a phone call uh, to the head coach there. His name was Kevin Janelle of the Janelle Hockey Lore, and he said, "Why don't you come? I uh, still got a spot." Uh, there's, there's a couple guys looking for the same job. Why don't you come in and see how you can do it? I ended up making the team and, uh, having a really good job. I was rookie of the year in the league and blah, blah, blah. And I had a bunch of scholarship offers, but I ended up going to RPI. Now I got a young kid, young Nick was born December 1st. I, I got caught in a snowstorm in York and Saskatchewan and I got <laughs> I got the news on a payphone after the game. So, you know, like this, it was that era where there was no cell phones. It was, you know, had some options. And I really liked uh, the cell job that uh, Buddy Powers and the Rensselaer staff did at the time. So I, I, I did some, uh, went down on some visits and, and whatnot, but ended up choosing RPI. And uh, yeah, that's how I got to RPI. Wanted to be a WHLer. While I was in Estevan, uh, I was still being heavily recruited in the dub because I was having an excellent year. And uh, at the time, Swift and Graham James was the coach of Swift, offered me this contract that I don't think existed at the time. They were going to pay for my college. They were going to give me double veteran money. They were gonna... But I went and met with them, and I was so freaked out that I said, no, nah, no, I'm not going to go there. Yeah, I think you made a pretty good decision with that. I mean, that's it's really good <laughs> it intuition. So, wow. I was like, it didn't, it didn't feel right. I walked into this office with no lights on, just one light, and it was like meeting the dawn, you know? I mean, it was like almost elusive and like roundabout. Almost, it, it felt like I was in the wrong place. So I'm like, nah, you know what? I appreciate the offer, but I'm going to go to college. That's just a little side tip. But anyways, went to RPI, had a great coach, and uh, and that's where it kind of started. I got drafted after my freshman year, and that's kind of how it started rolling. So did you go to RPI? That's on... a long answer to a short question. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> that's why we have an hour to do with this. Did you show up at RPI as a true freshman, or were you 19 when you came in? I was 19, yeah. So, uh, you know, true freshman, I'm not sure, but, uh, you know, 18 is true freshman, but I might as well have been. I was a uh, well, you just, were a man just, at that uh, point. You had a, you had a kid. You had a, a child. You were in college. <laughs> what uh, when you got to? RPI, well, I'm not the... sure I was a man. I was a, I was 156 pounds. 
<laughs> wow. At 6'1", yeah. you're 156 pounds. I was, I was 6'1", and 156 pounds as a freshman. And then, uh, you know, I, I played it around, you know, my last few years is around 190, and now I'm a little heavier than that. But, yeah, a big difference from, you know, I was, I was, I was a late developer. And, uh, yeah, I was coordinated, but I was, like, you know, pencil thin. Uh, as far as life experiences, yeah, I was I was I was I was above the curve. As far as physical, no, no, I was way behind. So yeah, in the early '90s, though, what was the ECAC like? You think about how college hockey's really grown and expanded and improved in recent times. In the early '90s, did you find that it was still a really high level of hockey that prepared you for pro? Well, I mean, my first year I played with uh, Joey Juno. Uh, he was a senior captain. So that was about as good as it got. He was exceptional. So I always, uh, you know, if I was going to rank uh, where the top level players were, I could see it every day in Joey because, uh, you know, he was the best collegiate athlete at the time and, you know, uh, up for the whole year. He sort of won it, but I'm not sure. Maybe he did win it. I can't remember now, but went on to a successful career as a skilled guy. But, there were some guys at that level, and it was just getting to that level. That was the Paul Korea level. Uh, that was the uh, you know era. Like so, college hockey was just starting to get the ball rolling and really starting to put some quality guys into the into the, into the next level. So I always thought that I was uh, pretty good. My freshman year was just average, uh, but. I, I got the I got the confidence uh, of my head coach Buddy Powers. He put me in a lot of games, and uh, and then after my freshman year, I kind of I rolled. So I just got better. I felt by the time I was a senior, did I feel like I was NHL ready? I thought so in my mind, but I had no idea. Um, I had grand illusions of stepping right into the National Hockey League and uh, you know playing right away. You know, because from what I was hearing, Russ Farrell was at at the time, Russ Farwell was the uh, GM of Philadelphia. Um, he had drafted me after my freshman year. So when I was a senior, Russ was still in charge, gave me a big ticket. And for, from what I was understanding, I was going to just jump right in <laughs> and get some games right away, get my feet wet. So as soon as I signed my contract, Russ Farwell gets fired. Bobby Clark comes in. And it was this summer, like, okay, well, I didn't really hear anything. Uh, what's going on? Clark, he didn't even bring me to camp. I didn't even go to camp. So I signed a big ticket. At that time, it was pretty big money for, you know, early 90s. And uh, didn't bring me to camp. So I'm like, well, what does that mean? I went right to Hershey. Completely missed out on the NHL camp. I'm like, wow, that's kind of strange. I was like, I was like two weeks in Hershey and down in Johnstown, Pennsylvania before I could blink, before I could blink an eye. Jeez. So, I'm like, so from coming out of college where I, you know, I, was, I had a good college career, so, you know, all American and whole Decker and all that stuff. So from going from a real high to like, where, where am I right now? So I, I'm in a, I'm in a hotel room. It's like 10 by 10. You can't open the bathroom door without hit the bed. There's a TV in the room, but it's, but it, it's mounted in the top corner of the, you know what I mean? Like it's mounted in the corner up on the ceiling. 
it was at, like a little tiny call. I'm like, what? Where am I? What am I doing? So it was a rude adjustment into pro hockey, but uh, yeah, you know that first year was really tough, and that was uh, an eye opener. I was not ready. I wasn't ready for that, and I wasn't physically or mentally ready to take on any adversity. So, you know, it was a it was a process for sure. Was that first year in Johnstown anything from the ECHL really stick out in your mind aside from that hotel room, the road trips, the per diem, all those type of things? Also, though, how did you end up in Hershey and end up playing almost 20 games for them? Because you didn't spend the whole year in Johnstown. No, I uh, I, sp- I spent my first year Johnstown to Hershey. So uh, another uh, my goalie partner, Aaron Israel, came out of Harvard at the same time. We both signed contracts out of uh, college. So when we came in, we came in the same time as Clarky came in. Clarky didn't know who we were. We didn't come to camp. So we were right to the coast. And we we would take two week shifts, like two weeks or three weeks in, three weeks out from from Johnstown to to Hershey, and then back again. So we'd kind of we'd kind of do the flop and switch. And I think after Christmas, I might have spent more time up in Hershey than I did in Johnstown. But at the same time, I wasn't like a regular American League player at that time. But some of the things that stuck out were that. Izzy, uh, Aaron Israel and I had our own house, so they rented us a house. And uh, uh, some of the times we were together, sometimes not. But uh, I just remember there was nothing to do. So as kids, you know, with nothing to do, not good. So you know, we we go to practice, uh, go to the beer store, <laughs> go home, or go for lunch, have a couple beers, and then sit on the couch all day and play whatever video game was was you know at that time early 90s whatever it was it just you know pretty much drink beers all day and then have you know have a game every other night or you know like just like a very like almost a college attitude toward pro hockey and not hearing anything of what we should be doing what we should <laughs> no coaching no so it was crazy so i remember that and i remember like just the other random things like our tough guy in the team was a goalie the year before, like just some random stuff. Like, hold on, hold on. Your fighter was a goalie, and he just switched midway through his career. <laughs> oh yeah, he was a, a goalie turned fighter, tough as nails. Anyways, so just little tiny things like that. I mean, we had a, we we tried to make the best of it, but I I I remember calling my old man. I remember calling my dad. I'm like, this is. This, this is ridiculous. I'm coming home. Like, this isn't this isn't what I signed up for. <laughs> and he talked me out of it. And he talked me out of it right through my first my my, my first year pro. I'm like, Dad, I don't want to go back. Like, uh, you know, I'll give the money back. I don't care. But that was not what I was expecting. He's like, okay, well, just you know what, get back there. You know, work hard in the summer. Go back. Do your best. And at Christmas time, if you still feel the same way, we'll have this conversation again. So, so I went back. You know, I, I trained. So I had a good train. Second, my second year pro. Uh, you know, made Hershey as a full timer. Still had some adjustment problems, and then uh, was still like that. I want to come home. Like a month in, I'm like, this is awful. <laughs> This is the worst experience of my life. And then our coach got fired uh, in Hershey. And uh, Billy Barber came in. 
I must have been a couple months into my second year pro. And uh, changed the whole attitude of the entire organization and everybody that I knew. Changed it all. And started, uh, you know, believed in me, played me, uh, gave me uh, all kinds of support and totally changed my entire attitude. And, uh, you know, he's the only reason, really, uh, that I that I stuck around and actually had some success. So, you know, it's amazing what one person's attitude and belief uh, can do for you. So, you know, that's Bill Barber. So is it mostly just the culture that had kind of had you down in the dumps? And I'm also, when I, as I'm listening to this, though, I'm wondering why the hell you ended up in the ECHL after that good of a college career if it was just a prejudice against college players or maybe it was just the fact that Bobby Clark wasn't familiar with you because it felt like they they kind of cast you off before you even had a chance to to really get going it's it's kind of fascinating to, to see this route that you had well that's probably it that the, the, you probably hit it on the head uh, in a couple different areas there one Bobby Clark didn't know who I was uh and second of all he probably had a collegiate you know like there were there was not a lot of college guys coming out at that time it's just kind of like the, the NCAA was just starting to produce the players at that time. So I thought that that's an old school philosophy where college kids were soft. Or you know, like it, it was it was a different mentality. Now, you know, thirty forty percent of the NHL is collegiate athletes. So at that time, though, it was just they were just starting to give NCAA collegiate athletes a chance at pro hockey. So so there was a the stereotype that. Mm, not sure about this. Let's wait and see. Again, you need someone in your corner. So Bobby didn't know who we were, and obviously nobody was stepping up. So it just it took an extra full year before uh, you know I get the ball rolling. I remember writing Bobby Clark a, a letter when I was a kid. I'm like, hey, listen, I don't know what's going on, <laughs> but because uh, I got sent home my first year pro, like I was up. Uh, so I was up at the end of the year and Hershey was just entering the playoffs. And I was like a third guy slash fourth guy with Izzy there in Israel. And they only needed one guy. And uh, we were just starting the playoffs. I can't remember who was playing. Scotty Legrand, I think was there at the time. And uh, maybe Freddie Shabbat, I think. Now Freddie was a fantastic goalie at the American League. Later. He came in. So Izzy and I were going to be, one of us is going to be the third guy for the playoffs. And uh, I got called into the office by the coach at the time, Jay Leach, and he said, uh, listen, uh, won't you get your stuff and uh, get on down the road? <laughs> <I'm> like, Excuse <laughs> me? <laughs> yeah. That was it. They just I, said, I'm hey, like, what? We'll, we'll see you next year. Come on to camp in shape. That's it. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, he's like, I just, uh, uh, I would tell you, uh, get your stuff and get on down the road. So, so now, you know, my team is in the playoffs and I got to drive home and tell my old man what, like, I don't know why I'm home right now. But <laughs> Unbelievable. So I'm like, dad, don't make me go back. This is just the worst experience of my life. I just can't, I don't understand what's going on. But anyway, it all turned out for the better after year one. So year one was good. And once Hershey, a little bit once trying. you got out of your time in Hershey, you ended up with the Phantoms in their first year that they came into existence in Philadelphia. You know, little do you know you're going to be a Phantoms Hall of Famer down the road at that point. Was it pretty cool to come in and play in the spectrum like that in front of a lot of fans and such a heated rivalry? And ironically enough, the heated rivalry was against Hershey, who had been where you were previously. What were those first couple of years with the Phantoms like? 
Oh, I was awesome. That was all Billy Barber too. So, uh, Ed Snyder and, uh, the brass had the idea of moving the American league team to Philly and we were going to, we we're going to play out of the spectrum because, uh, we had just built the, the new complex right next door and it was going to be all the same. It was, was going to be perfect. And it did turn out perfect. And, uh, but Billy liked me so much that he kind of made me uh, the poster child for our year one. So I was on, you know, a lot of advertising and stuff like that. And like, you know, he really, he really stuck his neck out and believed in me. So um, I got all kinds of opportunity and we had a great team. They, they put a, they put a good roster together. We probably should have won that first year, but I think we, I'm not sure how to say it. Maybe we had too much skill that wasn't ready to dig in uh, at crucial times. But we were selling out. We had, hey, we were averaging, I don't even know. I think the Spectrum held 18,000. We sold out, I don't know, 10, 15 times. We were probably averaging 12,000. The place was, was, it was nuts. And uh, so much fun and played with such a lot amazing characters, uh, good players and characters. And then second year, we won it all. Uh, And we actually won it in the Spectrum. So, you know, 19,000 crazy spectrum fans it was so much fun it just it just seemed to work it was uh blue collar cheap tickets hard working uh and our i think our team really encapsulated our fan base you know, and uh that, that's how it worked so well you can tell i mean blue collar i'm looking at this thing and i think you had seven or eight guys that were over 100 penalty minutes led by frank the animal bialawas who i probably just butchered his name but was that a central part of this team you were playing on? Was the toughness, or was that just how the league was back then? It was a really, it was a really tough league, uh, no question. It, uh, it was a man's league, uh, and if you were soft, you you weren't gonna last. So it was a very tough league, and we had the toughest team, and we had the most skilled team. I thought so. Our balance really, uh, we were tough to play against, and. Uh, Frankie Bialoas was, you know, the catalyst of that. I mean, this guy's a folk hero. There's still pictures of him around in Allentown. Oh, yeah. He's, he, he's fantastic. I love Frankie. I still love him. He lives, he's still local, and uh, he's an amazing uh, individual. And he's unique as unique can be. But uh, they had it right. Like, we had such a tough team. And Frankie, and Billy would start Frankie uh, every game. So he'd be on uh, the first shift. The place would be packed. You know, oh, we were so tough. But Frankie, he'd start Frankie every game. And uh, Frankie had a routine before every game where, you know, everybody would be kind of lined up and ready to go. But Frankie would still be all right. He'd always be the last guy to face off. So he'd be over at the bench. Everybody's kind of milling about waiting for Frankie to get to the face off circle. And, and the place is going crazy. Well, Frankie, number one, had no tape on his stick. Didn't have any blade? tape on his stick. None on the blade. <laughs> he had a little on the knob and nothing on the blade, like just a little, maybe like a couple, couple swipes on the top and nothing on the blade, no tape. And he had this, and he'd lean his stick up against the boards. And uh, Derek Settlemeyer, the trainer, would uh, have him have him set up. He had the two water bottles, so the two water bottles would be on the dasher board, spread like six inches apart. And in between those water bottles, there was two sniffers. You know, the snippers, the, uh, you know, yeah, the ammonia, snippers. right. Yeah. The ammonia. Yeah. 
So Frankie would come over there and he, and he put his gloves on the, on the far side of the water bottles and the stick was leaning up and he'd take these sniffers and he, and he had long hair like down in the middle of his back. So he'd crack these uh, sniffers and just like inhale both sniffers at the same time with like bent over so his hair was like kind of over the top and he, he could see his head shaking as he's sucking in these two sniffers and he'd throw the sniffers into the bench while still bent over, take the water bottles, squirt both water bottles over his head at the same time, and then go up and jump up so his hair and the water would fly up so the water was like spraying like 30 feet in the air. <laughs> and he was yelling because of the ammonia. So he'd be like, <laughs> and he looks like the other And the water would shoot out like a, like a, like a, it would just shoot like for 30 feet, like, you know, in a big arc. And, and, he, and his eyes would be like rolling back in his head and he's screaming and he put his gloves on and he'd grab his stick and he'd look at the other bench. I, I remember backing up, so I'd watch his routine on the regular. And he'd just look over at the bench and he goes, I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> <laughs> at the other team's bench? <laughs> yeah, everybody's just scared shitless and then you go right up to the drive. You had no tape on the stick and it was just a scene that you would never believe. And you know, first shift would be fantastic. The the the, the place is going crazy and he you know but ninety percent of the time to be he'd dump the puck in, the D would go back for it and he'd come charging in on a full head of steam and the D man would just like get out of the way because you know <laughs> And he'd jump up and he'd hit the old spectrum glass and the glass was the, you know, the old, the old glass that used to go back and forth and made a big sound. So he'd jump up and miss the hit, hit the glass and the glass would just go, oh, make this big, and the whole 18,000 people would be like, <laughs> oh, it, was, it was priceless. And then obviously he fought a couple of times during the game and, you know, he was tough, you know, but we had so many tough guys, but Frankie was, you know, Obviously, uh, he sold some tickets for sure. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. I've I've always wanted to ask somebody though who played on teams that were from that era and that were that tough, especially ask a goalie. Did it make you nervous going into games sometimes just because of the fear of the unknown? Not, I mean, it could get completely out of hand at some point. Did it make you nervous? Oh, we set all kinds of penalty records. We we set, we had uh, we had line brawls upon line brawls upon line brawls, um, setting all kinds of records. But we were so tough that uh, fear didn't even cross my mind. Like, all I had to do was try to go. Uh, so, you know, what are the chances you're going to get beat up? So I used to ask these guys. I, I played with so many tough guys. I'm like, okay, give me – Frankie is getting tips all the time. I'm like, okay, this – just give me – you know, I got to fight. Like, he's like, okay. And he just showed me a couple things. He's like, you don't have to worry about anything. I'll be there. I'm like, no, but just in case, you know. You should just tie up, just figure out what hand they're throwing with, tie it up and chuck with the other one, keep your eyes open. So, you know, it's pretty basic information, but it got me through a lot of fights against guys who didn't know what they were doing. So, wow. How many did you think you had in your pro career? I don't remember. Uh, maybe eight to ten, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, remember they were, I remember they were always entertaining. Like, I had, I had no fear, so I always put on a show, like, I don't know why I did that. I think the reason I did it is I saw my good buddy uh, uh, Chris Osgood was playing in uh, Adirondack. So 
right up the road from RPI. So I was about 45 minutes away from my best buddy that we grew up together playing the Medicine Hat. He was playing for Detroit Red Wings farm team, which is in Adirondack. And I was playing at RPI, so I just drive up there and watch his games and hang out. So it was, it was fantastic. But the reason I put some show in my fights is because watching Adirondack, they had a pretty good team at that time. And Darren McCarty of the Grind Line used to put on a show before his fights in the American League, like, like spin his helmet and throw his gloves. I'm like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. So I love Mac. But I think that's where I got it from. Like, just make sure you're entertaining. Like, I don't want to get beat up, but make sure it's entertaining. So I used to spin my helmet and do all kinds of crazy stuff. But knowing that I had, I just had to fight a goalie. So, you know, you could kind of ham it up a little bit, but, you know, it's still serious. But at the same time, Gives gives give the people what their <laughs> their money's worth anyway. So, is that what yeah. led to the flying squirrel moment when you did the famous leap into the brawl against Binghamton? I think it was two thousand four, maybe. Hey, this is legendary yeah, stuff. The you flying you went completely airborne, nearly nearly sideswiped a guy's head off with your skate by the time you came down. <laughs> what were you? So many people see this, and the question's always the same. What were you thinking? What was going through your mind? Yeah. That's got a lot of airtime. The flying goalie got a lot of airtime. You know, if I played in today's in today's era, I think I would have a lot more YouTube hits. Because <laughs> there's a lot of good footage that went unnoticed. But anyway, on that one, uh, we were playing against Binghamton at the time, and uh, Ray Emery was playing for Binghamton. And Ray was a tough cat. Uh, we had a pretty good rivalry with them, both pretty tough teams at the time. But anyways, uh, Ray was... Ray was fucking around that night, and he was, uh, there was a scrum around his net, and he, he pitchforked one of our guys so hard. Uh, you know, one of our skilled guys, and you know, I, I laugh about it now, but he went down like, like, a, like, a, like a bag of dirt. And so it was, I think that was the final straw because he was like, he was like, Ray was on edge that night. Like, he was like very, he, he, was, he, was, he was pushing it. But that was the final straw. So after Ray speared one of our guys, now the line ball kind of started, and I was already on the way because that was the last straw. On my way down, now the pile's getting bigger. Now it's, now it's one big pile, and Ray's in there somewhere, and I don't know why, <laughs> but I figured let's just get right in the middle of it, and I just dove, but I dove. I, I didn't. I didn't know I had that much spring in my step and I went up and I went over and I missed the entire pile and I landed on the other side, kind of, kind of rolled over. Thank goodness. Nobody got cut with that. <laughs> that, was, that was up high at the time. I remember, I just remember like just seeing everything going below me. I'm like, Oh, too, I too much of a push. And I went over the, over this, but I kind of come back on the other side and now I'm getting up and I'm looking for Ray. And I don't, I don't, find, I don't see Ray any, anywhere. But this one little, little skilled guy's got me, and now he's got me in the corner, and he's trying to talk to me. He's like, "Hey, hey, let's hang out. How you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> hey, I don't know if you remember me, but I went to, I went to RPI. I think he was an RPI guy or something like that. Hey, I get, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't want to fight, but I, like he's like, like talking like a mile a minute. <laughs> he was really nervous, obviously. But, like he didn't know what to do and i was like i 
at the time I didn't really hear him. I was just looking for Ray and see if I could get back in the pile, but he was kind of like pushing me over to the corner. And finally I looked at him and he was still talking. I'm like, it's probably a better idea if I stay here with you. <laughs> so I face washed him a little bit and we kind of danced around the corner and, and Ray was taking on some bigger, bigger guns at the time. But, uh, Oh man. Yeah. Oh, I remember that. It was, it was crazy. I remember John Paddock was the coach and, by the time they got me back to the bench, uh, I got a hold of a player's stick, and, and Paddock was yelling at me from the bench over top of the players, and I took the stick, and I pretended to javelin him, <laughs> the javelin throw. So I wound up, and I just, you know, and I stopped it at the last second. Obviously, I didn't throw the stick, but I could see Johnny, like, covering up. and like <laughs> Now, it's only funny because I coached with Johnny for, like, three years after that, and we became – great friends after that golf partners and stuff like that. But, uh, I remember that like it was yesterday, him ducking, like I was going to throw this stick, like a javelin. Uh, best part of the story is like two days later, we had to play him in Binghamton after this huge, I think we set all kinds of penalty uh, record minutes, uh, that night. And then two nights later, now we got to, we're back in Binghamton and I'm playing and Ray's playing, you know, it's, this is going to be a big one. It's going to be rough. It's going to be line brawls. It's going to get crazy. <laughs> so I'm skating around a warm up. I'm like, oh, this is, this is going to get, I got to get ready for this game because I, I know, like, I'm going to have to fight Ray Emery. Like, it's, that's, no, that's no small task. He's probably Ray's probably the toughest guy I ever played goal, I would assume. Like, yeah, so, him or Dan Cloutier, Ron Hextall, one of, take one of those three. I mean, when Cloutier's wires would cross, you'd always have to watch out for him, too. He re, he always made me really nervous. Yeah, Cloutier, for sure. It's amazing you get to know these guys afterwards. I met Cloutier now, too, and he's either soft-spoken and stuff like that. Worked with Hexy forever, and uh, obviously. And Ray came to Philly, and uh, I'm, I, I picked him up the first day he was in town when we went golfing. So. <laughs> but, uh, God bless him. God rest his soul. But, so now we're in Binghamton. We gotta play. We gotta play Ray. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna have to fight Ray Emery. <laughs> this is not gonna. Just you know, like I'm just, I'm just thinking in my head. I just, all right, it's gonna happen. No big deal. So I'm skating around a warm up, and, and you know how you skate around the outside and come through the middle. I'm just getting fed with pucks, like just pucks off the ass, off the calves, off like the shoulder. <laughs> They're literally firing pucks and zipping them at me as I'm coming through the middle. I turn over and there's Ray uh, and uh, Brian McBratton. Oh. <laughs> and I don't know who else, some other tough guy, just firing pucks at me. So I come back around again and they're all standing there and they're like, you're fucking dead, little. You're fucking dead. <laughs> that team was crazy <laughs> tough. I mean, they had McGratton and, I mean. Oh my God. This is, this is my, yeah. Yeah, this isn't cool. This is, this is no lightweight stuff going on here. So I come back again and then I'll stand there and I'll chirp him. Then I cruise around again and I just started taking pucks and just started firing at him. I'm like, bring it on, you fucking. <laughs> Giving it right back to him. <laughs> <laughs> so I start, I start feeding wristers right back, hitting the ground. And I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> Anyways, uh, Derek's on the bench and he's laughing. Derek Selmar, he's laughing. Laugh off. I'm like, oh, real funny, Derek. Yeah, real funny. Because <laughs> he loves that stuff. So anyways, now after warm-up, so I'm sitting there. And uh, so now I'm, uh, you know, got top half of my gear off. 
and uh, sitting there getting my gear on. I get gear off, just getting prepped for the first period, knowing that it's going to be a melee. So I'm sitting there trying to get prepped, you know, dreading the inevitable. And uh, Derek comes in. It's like 10 minutes before the game time, eight minutes or whatever. And he comes in, he stands right in front of me. He's like, oh, you wouldn't believe what I just saw. I'm trying to get ready for the game. I'm pretty, you know, I, I take the game seriously. But he's like, you wouldn't believe what I just saw. I'm like, what, Derek? What? He's like, I was just over in the, I was just over on the Binghamton, Binghamton side. And I walked through the weight room. And there's Ray Emery on the bench press. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, he's got all his top stuff on. He's got his pads on. And he's pounding out 235, just pumping it out. And he saw me walk by as he's pumping this 235 out like 20 times. And he looked over. He said, tell little he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Do a bench press. <laughs> <laughs> That's my trainer. Five minutes before a game, telling tell, tell me that Ray, Ray Emery has relayed a message to me. <laughs> uh, tell Little he's dead. So anyway, the game starts, and I'm like, oh, boy, this is going to get ugly real quick. First shift, there was a fight. Second shift, another fight. Third shift, uh, almost close to a line brawl. Uh, if, it, if, if the D did... If the D jumped from the blue line, it was going to be a line brawl, and I knew that Razor was coming down. But the D, but the D never came down, so it was just like a, kind of like a two on two with a, like a, a third kind of half scrap. But if the D would jump, then Razor would have came, and it would have been a melee. But anyways, they didn't jump, and I ended up playing one of the best games of my entire life because I knew if I could keep it close, then Ray would be. <laughs> I think he won two to one or something, so he didn't have the chance to get down there, but oh, man, that was quite the show. Yeah. That's unreal. And I think about uh, that the league was just so different back then, and, and it stuck around through my first couple of years. But what you guys went through, and we'd always joke around calling it the Iron League, what it used to be. <laughs> Crazy stuff, man. Let's, let's flip back, though. That was a couple years later. Let's flip back, though, to winning that first Calder Cup with Philadelphia. You did it as a starting goalie, you carried the mail. Was really was that the high water mark of your career at that point? I think that was probably the most confident that I've ever been in terms of confidence and knowing that I could do it. Uh, was I a better goalie a couple of years down the line? Yes, I think I was. But in terms of like knowing that I could do it and I was ready for the next level, I think that was probably the highest I got. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of things came together. We had a good team. and I was playing with a lot of confidence. I, I just remember... I still remember this being on the ice. I'm like, uh, all right. We, we played against a pretty good uh, uh, Flames team there, the front team. Uh, St. Louis was on a uh, uh, Jiggy on goal. Yes, you get it. Actually, those guys didn't play that great in the final, but they had a good team. Uh, St. Louis played good, obviously. I just remember him chirping every single shift. But, yeah, that was uh, probably, well, it was probably the most enjoyable run that I've had. Yeah, we won it again in 2005, but I was just in a supporting cast with uh, Nitty. Nitty had the ball there, but, you know, we had another great team at that time. But as far as uh, pinnacle and feeling like I could do it, yeah, that was that was probably it. year after that's kind of interesting, though, because you didn't stick around Philadelphia. You're in Grand Rapids the following season, and it's the only time that I can see that you weren't in Philadelphia's organization. 
So how did it come to be that she ended up moving over to the IHL into Grand Rapids? I had, uh, so my contract was up and uh, I wanted to prove Clarkie that I wanted to be a flyer. And Clarkie said, well, here's what we can do. Uh, you're going to be my number two, uh, but we, I can't give you like a one-way deal. I mean, you never played, so take this and we'll see how it goes. But you're my number two. I'm like, okay, because the result at that time, it was, uh, I think Beezer was there. But anyways, late August, Clarkie signed Texie to be the number two. So now I'm number three. And number three is not going to work because Brian Boucher was a rookie with me the previous year, and he was a high draft pick, and they had high hopes for him. So, And yeah, another kid coming in, uh, John Mark Peltier, they didn't have a place for him. So really, I was the odd man out. Once Hexy signed, I, I was I was um, I was pretty much hooped. And uh, you know, shame on me for not knowing how to negotiate at that time, and really maybe shopping myself. But I had, but I wanted to prove everybody wrong so badly that I took a one year in Philly just to prove that I could do it. Now it ended up being the worst decision ever. But you know. Right after training, I had a great training camp, and that was it. Like I, I figured, well, see what happens here. Maybe at the very least, being silly uh, with Bush and you know try to do this whole thing again. But it didn't work out that way. They wanted Bush uh, playing majority of minutes. They wanted Peltier to be his backup, and I was the odd man out. So uh, I didn't have the heart to ask for a trade because I really didn't know how to do that either. Young and I had an agent that really didn't know what he was doing either. It was my fault at the end of the day, but go to Grand Rapids. Uh, and then that was it. I went from the best, uh, the best team in the league to one of the, you know, we didn't make the playoffs for kind of cellar dwellers and uh, I had to kind of work my way back again. Uh, almost, pretty much lost about a year to a year and a quarter, just trying to get my confidence back again so it took me like till december to even feel like a goalie again the following season so a full year wasted in grand rapids when i thought that that was best that i was going to be and i completely lost it so you know it's mental too so so you were you were loaned out to grand rapids then you didn't sign with them. You were yeah, I was, I was under Flyers contract. Yeah, gotcha. yeah I was under Flyers contract. Yeah. Was it just a huge shot across the bow, though, to win the Calder Cup and carry a team and think in your fourth year pro, man, I'm getting some momentum. I just need my chance. And then to kind of get buried again like that? It, I can't imagine what that had been like for you. Well, it was tough. It took me, honestly, it took me a year and, about four, year and four months almost to really get my mind back where I could actually, you know, try to focus on getting back to where I was. That's how big of a blow it was. Cause I, you know, I, I don't, I, I didn't have the capacity to think in another direction at that time. I'm like, okay, I got this. Uh, I'm ready. He said that, yes, I'm going to be the number two. And here we go. I'm going to finally get my shot. Uh, and let's go with it. And then, you know, late August, Hexy signs or whenever he signed, it was, uh, it was late. And uh, I'm like, uh, what does this mean? So if you could if you could do it again, you, know, you just you know you ask for a trade or you would you know I, I don't know I, it would definitely I, with this much knowledge I would definitely do something different. I certainly wouldn't have signed a deal right after uh, 
based on a, the assumption that I was going to be number two without a one-way deal. So, yeah, I was naive too. So it's, it's, it's my fault as well. So. Yeah, but you know, you spent this many years with that organization. I can understand the familiarity of it too. And you think it's eventually you're going to get rewarded. You were a starting goalie in the minors for six years at least minimum. And then you finally get your chance. 2001, 2002, Philly gets you in there. What led up to your first NHL start and how did the game go? Well, I, I, I'd been up uh, over, you know, four, five, six year span. I'd been up like 10 games here, five games there, you know, five, like uh, probably in grand total. I don't even know what the total was, but I'm, if, it, if it wasn't a record for zero minutes, I, I don't know who's got it. I, I would have to, if I had to guess, it was probably between 40 and 50 games before I saw one NHL minute. Like nobody no got hurt. Way. Nobody got, nobody got pulled. Nobody got nothing. Well, at least so, you got paid. Uh, That's the good part of it. You got the yeah, NHL money for a while. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. It was, it was, it was just amazing that nobody got pulled in like, you know, it was, it was more than a half a season of, of me backing up games and nobody got pulled, but I did finally get a game. Uh, Billy Barber was the coach of uh, Philly. We had a back-to-back. Uh, we had a game Friday, well, whatever it was. It was Friday at, at MSG and Saturday in Carolina or whatever the days were. It was back-to-back. And uh, Billy was going to play me in MSG. He thought that that might be a great way to my first game, but he, but he changed his mind and ended up playing the back-to-back in Carolina the next night. And uh, I played okay, but we got out shot 15-1 to in the first period. Oof. or 14 to one. It was one, nothing. I'm, I'm like, what? <laughs> Obviously there was a big drop off from, from the way that we were playing to the our first period. And the second and third just kind of went by the way. So that deflected goals and, you know, just, I think I let in four and three of them were reviewed when there was no review. <laughs> oh no, man. You know what I mean? Like, at that time, there was no review, but they were actually reviewing to see how, you know, if it was a high stick or how these pucks, it was just crazy. Uh, and Artis Urbe was in I wanted to fight Artis Urbe. I think I got 10 minutes. For, I think I got 10 minutes in penalties and lost 4-1, but that hold, was my Hold on, start. hold on. How'd you, how'd you get 10 minutes of penalties? You just, you're glossing well, over that. I think I got that. 12. I think happen? I got 12. Two for roughing and a 10-minute misconduct. <laughs> <laughs> Because it was just, I think it was after one of the, it was, I think it was three knots, and it was after one of the, another just like ridiculously, just heartbreaking goal where it went off a couple things and went in the net, and there was a big kind of scrum around. And I just, I remember, I remember hitting someone in the face so hard, it was like a little skilled guy, that I couldn't believe that he was still on his feet. <laughs> and then a big melee, and I remember. I, I remember Urbe coming down to the bench because I had got the penalty, and then a big melee ensued, and he was chirping me from the bench, and I was trying to get, I was trying to break out of the pack to go and pound on Artis Urbe, and uh, some big ref at the time said he's retired now, big mustache, I can't remember his name now. He's like, "Don't embarrass me, don't embarrass me," and he's got me on a bear hug as I'm trying to get to Artis Urbe. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, it was Bill McCreary, I think. I think it was McCreary, big mustache. Yeah. I said, him. I said, embarrass you. Fuck off. My dad's in the stands. I'm the one that's embarrassed, and I'm trying to get over to Arthur Survey to kick his ass. I couldn't get over there. Oh, yeah. 
was crazy. Did you at least still, <laughs> did you at least have the chance to soak it in and say, "Hey, man, I finally did this. I'm in the NHL. You can't take this away from me. I am here, and I've done it." Did you finally get that feeling, though? Uh, I think afterwards. I think afterwards. Um, you know, I just walked with my dad, and I said, "Well, uh, I know it didn't go the way we wanted to, Dad, but um, you know, I did my best." And he was he was happy. You know, my dad was like. I thought it was great. You know, like, you know how dads are. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you, you know, you get your game in. So good. I played another game. Uh, Rob Ash got pulled against, uh, I think Carolina won the Stanley cup that year. So they were pretty good. And I played another game. Rob Ash got hurt on a five on three. I came in on a five on three against Tampa Bay. Uh, Tampa went to the finals that year or one. I can't, anyways, the two games I played were Stanley cup contenders. So that didn't go well. Well, it's not always going to go perfect every time, right? <laughs> I've had plenty of those where I'm just going, man, I'm getting another shit sandwich back into the back-to-back. Let's just try to go out here and make it work well. Yeah. I can't remember who Barry went off one time or off to Tampa. It was a five-on-three and, you know, just a, a tee-up for the first goal. And the second goal I got scored against was uh, Ruslan Fedotenko. And uh, he was right in front of the net and just kind of jammed home like a kind of like a bobbling puck around the crease and but he i remember it because he because i played with Ruslan, and he just looked at me and said i'm so sorry let <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't celebrating he was apologizing for scoring so I, I like that i like that a lot <laughs> let's, let's talk about this beautiful equipment you had you were one of the first guys that i can remember that really started to embrace putting logos on your pads and different colorways and patterns and Brian's, I think, was your longtime manufacturer who facilitated a lot of this stuff. For this type of things, was it your input or was the company help driving it? How did you come to to have these ideas to, to make them on your pads with the different phantoms and and flyers, logos, colors? Uh, was it more your idea? Oh, yeah, or... yeah. That was, that was all me. I was, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like a artist at heart. Uh, so, yeah, I used to... Uh... I, I was using Vaughn in uh, in uh, college because I love uh, I love the look of Vaughn. I love the look of Andy Moog. Andy Moog was my guy, and uh, you, know, you know he always looked so good in his gear. But I tried to get Vaughn to to customize some stuff, but they couldn't do it. They had a I don't know why they couldn't do it, but uh, and at the time my first pro was like Heaton slash Bryant. So I like the look of the heat and pad. Brands was maybe not out quite yet, but anyways, I always tried to get them to put my design on the pads, and Brands was the first one to say, "Yeah, we can do that." And uh, I don't remember. I don't. I don't remember anybody else doing it at the time. So uh, for them to do it was pretty cool. And I just, I just drew out exactly what I wanted. The color scheme. Here's what I want. To a, a finite detail, and, and they just they just ran with it. So because I did the same thing with my mask, I I I, I do the entire design and just give it to a painter. Looking good was was a priority. Do you, <laughs> you still know? get yeah? Do you still get excited when you see a new set of gear that looks really good? There's a few guys out there with some style, but you know how you know how it is. Like we're 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 uh, we're gear nerds. I like a guy with a little style, a little suave, you know, a little swagger, humble but swag, you know what I mean? So yeah, I, I don't exactly. mind the pads and stuff like that, but it's got to be done right. 
Yeah, so, so much of this stuff's just white and bland now. And a lot of the guys, though, like with Bauer doing the digital printing of things, these guys can really thank you and, and what Brian's was doing years ago because you set the trend on it. Yeah, Brian's actually wasn't, a, it was an actual, they used to cut the leather in the pattern that I was showing them. So it was stitched leather. Now it's all digital. So uh, Lundquist had its actual, you know, there, there's no separate, it's all one piece of leather. But my pads are actually, it was actually cut leather. So they actually have to cut the leather to my specific, you know, like, like, and then patch it and sew right. it. So, Did you have anything, was there anything unique about the specs of your equipment, your pads or gloves or sticks, skates, anything? Not really. I used to play around with it. I think my, my length was pretty standard. My width was fairly standard. I remember when I was first, when I first came to Philly, there was no, there was no regulations on, uh, on pad width. So I remember Richter had a, had a pair of pads in at the ranges that I heard were 15 inches. So I, I, got Brian's to make me 12 at the top and 15 at the bottom. Oh. And, uh, and they said, no problem. Set them to you. And, yeah. They said, yeah, yeah, we can do it. So it was 12 <laughs> or 11 and a half, of, 11 and a half at the top and 15 at the bottom. And these things were fantastic. <laughs> well, yeah, they took up the whole but, net. <laughs> but you, but you like, literally you could, you could stand up from any shot from about, just past the dot, you know, like, 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 like three feet past the dot, you could stand up comfortably knowing that there's no way that there's, you have, you, the most you'd have to move is about two inches to your left. So you took away the short side, closed your legs, and the most you'd have to move is two inches to the left. So you really only had, you, you know, most of the, it was fantastic, but you couldn't walk and you couldn't move. And you kept, like you, you clip yourself on the bottom. So, moving smoothly and uh, like any kind of butterfly was like was hard on your knees because I, I, just the angle of your of your knee to your ankle your ankle would be higher than your knee so there was no way to use your edges to go but as far as like bad angle shots home run <laughs> you just stand there <laughs> you literally just stand there just stand there there's no room you, you had a secret weapon in your pocket i heard though with the phantoms too though can you tell me about Rooney, the shot clock guy? Oh, Rooney. Uh, that was uh, Brian Boucher and, and myself. Were, uh, so uh, Rooney was a, a shot clock guy in, in Philly. He was suspect at best because, you know, goalies are shot clock watchers. Like, we base our whole game on getting to, you know, like if you got one goal on 14, okay, you know exactly what your save percentage is. Now, now you got two on 50. Now you got to get back. Now you got to stop eight to get back to where, you know, like we're, we're, we're clock watchers. I'm not sure if you were, but I was. Oh, absolutely. It would drive me crazy. You'd get buildings where you knew you were going to miss two or three a game. And if that was your whole arena, that could be 30 or 40 grand in your pocket by the end of the year, (laughs) you know, or you might not get a job. So it would drive you up a goddamn wall. so people don't think about that, but Bush and I were, were crazed, and uh, and Rooney was the shot clock guy, and uh, and Rooney was suspect at best because sometimes he'd miss like you know like it wasn't like two again. Sometimes he'd miss like you know six to seven to eight. Or... So this went on. It was a it was a running joke. We'd be so mad at, at this shot clock guy. We was like, this is our home arena. Like we should be getting like at least pay attention. That's all we do. So finally there used to be a bar in the spectrum called bullies and uh, the fans would go down there and the players would go down there to get changed. It was just, it was crazy. But 
the off-ice officials would also be in that bar. And so we got the, so we, Brian and I figured out, okay, that's the shot clock guy right there. So we go over there. <laughs> and it was so funny. I wish, you got to get Bush on here because he's got the best, he's got the best impersonations anyways. But anyways, we, we come up there <laughs> and uh, we go, Rudy, you're an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> you remember the, you remember Ferris Bueller? You know, yeah. You remember yeah. that Ferris? So, so we used that line, and he didn't know what was going on. It was this Bush and I just berating this guy. He's like, "What? What? What guys?" I'm. And we just tore into him. We're like, "You got to do a better job." And blah, blah blah blah. But it was so funny because the lead line was, "Rooney, you're an asshole." <laughs> <laughs> so he was pretty good from that point forward. After buying him a couple beers well, and giving he, him the screws. Yeah, he was. He was better, but I wouldn't say that he was. On his A game every night, but uh, well, you know, you go into Binghamton and and uh, you'd have thirty shots, but you'd be credited for thirty eight. So, like, there's some, you know, it goes both ways. But you'd like to think that you get credit for your shots that you've stopped. I don't know. It's, 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 that's that's the one selfish thing about goalies. Like, we want credit for the things that we've done. Yeah, well, but that's because our that's all we have at the end of the day. A lot of times is our stats, especially when there's not always people in the building to justify it. You might get a scouting report, but if the yeah. numbers don't add up to it, you're not going to get the benefit of the doubt. That's why we're so adamant about this stuff. Well, it, 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 never, it usually never works in your favor. So if you, if you miss two shots a game and you played 50 games that year, it's, you know, it's 100 shots against you. That, that might get you from, uh, that might get you from uh, 898 to 904. It might get you from 908 to 912. It might get you, it, it might get you like, to the next level. Like a right. hundred shots is a lot of shots. Like it could get you four points higher. So, you know, it, it makes a big difference for us. We're, you know, we're numbers. We're numbers. Yeah. Too. Oh yeah. I mean, was, was that a big part of those teams back in, in Philly and, and in some of the other places you were though, just having fun like that, having the chance to go to a bar after the game in the building, uh, be with your teammates. Well, you know, as well as I, mean, I play with so many characters and uh, that was half the fun. So, when people say, do you regret anything? Do you wish anything? I would be like, uh, no, I've seen it. I, I know. I, I mean, I was, in, I was in Philly for 24 years. I've seen, I had such a good time that I can't complain. Now, would I have wanted a 10-year NHL career? Sure, I would have, but I cannot complain because I had so much fun and met so many good people that, it's hard to say I wish I would have because I pretty much, you couldn't have done it better. So that's, that's the way I think about it. That's what everybody you ever played with you tells me is that you nobody could have done it better than you, that you were easily one of the most fun guys they've ever played with on and off the ice. Is there any memories that you have from being off the ice in those moments that were equal to being on the ice, whether just playing with different characters or, or going to different cities and, Sometimes the surreal things that could happen you'd never expect. Did any of those stick out to you? Uh, well, I mean, there's a lot of stories that that were fantastic that I cannot say just because that it would incriminate a lot of people. <laughs> 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 but that being said, uh, you know, everybody that I, I – I don't think I ever had a partner that I didn't enjoy – and I played with so many guys that had different personalities, whether it be shy and uh, reserved to uh, the exact opposite. So um, 
I, I must have played with, with a couple dozen different guys over my span of uh, in, in Philly alone. And every single one was a different, was a, you know, it was, he was a different animal. Like he was a different, completely different personality than the next guy. And I think I, one of the things that I'm most proud of is that, is that I got along and really supported and hoped the best for every single one of my goalie partners. As well as my teammates, I really want to see success uh, and happiness in everybody uh, that I played with. And I, yeah, you know, you consider them family. So, what do you do for family? You support them. You have fun. You uh, and you just you're on a journey together. And I think that's the way I kind of try to approach it. Now, there's a lot of stories in there, uh, <laughs> but I, <laughs> a lot of stories. But I just I, I think if I was to be remembered, I, I, I wish people would say that I was a good teammate for once. Well, maybe that's the only thing. I was a good teammate and a good friend. So um, that, that's that's really what I what I wanted. So. Well, that's what everybody said here is when I was doing the research, always in a great mood, contagious energy, a lot of fun to be around. Really, And they always said you were really light in the locker room, too, that you were, you were pretty relaxed. So uh, that's not always a trait that goaltenders have, especially when you have Ray Emery breathing down your neck like you had a couple times in your career. For your last season, though, you ended up playing overseas. Did you know that you're finishing out your North American career and you wanted to at least do one tour of Europe before you retired? I think so. I think uh, it was getting to that point. Um, I was certainly in a mentorship role. Uh, our, my final year with the uh, Phantoms, uh, Nittimaki had the ball. And, uh, you know, we had a great run. He played fantastic was a playoff MVP. I think I got in a couple games in the playoffs, but you know, it was his ball and his show and he was fantastic. So once you get to that 34 age, you, you know, you, now you start, okay, there's not a lot left. I can, I'm, I'm a smarter goalie than I've ever been, but maybe not quite as athletic. I didn't, it certainly wasn't in prime physical condition my entire <laughs> career. I didn't really take care of, really fantastic care of myself but I was always ready to go and I was very competitive and I loved to win so kind of the two kind of equaled out now guys are in fantastic shape watch what they eat uh don't drink too much uh you know make good decisions I, I was maybe I was uh on the fence with most of those but uh so I was 34 I'm like okay I want one more year maybe two let's go try the European route uh went to Espo Finland uh, another, I was a rude awakening as well. Uh, had a good group, and uh, but so physically intensive that it was beyond my capacity. Like workouts, we had a coach that uh, took it to an extreme. Thought maybe that we were Olympians, and uh, the Olympics were like in a week. So, like you know, we we're doing uphill sprints over hurdles. We we're doing heavy. Uh, squat days, day before games, like stuff that I was not used to. And I came out of the gates, played great. And uh, they were talking, maybe you should sign here for a couple more years. And, uh, you know, I, I used to joke that I, I, I came out of the gates like uh, like Bernie Perrant. And uh, by Christmas time, I was, uh, I, was the, I was that guy. Who's, the, who's the dead guy in that movie? That's 
<laughs> weekend at Bernie's? <laughs> you were Bernie? Yeah, I was Bernie. I went from Bernie Peranta weekend at Bernie's. So yeah, yeah, I went from like a nine fifty to like I got ki- I got kicked out of the finish league with a nine twenty safe percentage. That's tough to do. So uh, yeah, from Bernie to Bernie. Yeah, and then I went to Switzerland. I went to Switzerland for a couple months uh, under Christmas McSorley. I didn't end up playing any games, but I kind of hung out in uh, Geneva for a couple months, and I came back, and I was it. I was it. I, I, my body was done. My body was done. My knees were done. Hips were done. Couldn't couldn't make it to the vehicle at the end of the game. It was just too sore. So. so you knew it was the right time. That's cool. I had that same feeling this last year that it, it felt like a farewell tour in, a, tour in a lot of ways. I remember looking at some of the arenas and thinking, this has been an awful lot of fun. It's probably the last time I'm going to see it. So get off the ice and wave goodbye here, just thinking it may not happen again. Yeah, you, I, you had Oh, you had a, you had a, you had an amazing career. Sorry to cut you off, but I got the chance to watch you uh, a lot. Obviously, when you rolled through Springy, and I was working for Florida, but uh, I've seen you play you know, Philly, Spring. I've, I've seen you. You had a hell of a career, and uh, you know, I goalies. We like some guys. We like to watch some guys. We don't particularly care to watch others. But you were a guy that I could watch every night and say that's a goalie. He knows what he's doing. He's smooth. He, he like so. Congratulations on a great career yourself. So Thanks. awesome stuff. That's a that's a huge uh, huge compliment, man. I appreciate it. It's I, it's funny, you know. I I look at the guys that I have so much respect for, and obviously the NHL players and NHL goalies are are really high. But I think there's also this kinship amongst the guys who spent the majority of their careers in the minors, like you and I, because we really had to slug it out and know what it took in terms of dedication uh, and just how well you had to play to keep getting contracts. So that was really one of the biggest reasons I wanted to talk to you too, is because I knew you'd have perspective on what we'd both been through. And I have so much admiration for what you accomplished in your career. I mean, RPI hall of famer, Phantoms hall of famer, one of the best goalies in the American league for years and years. So I'm, I'm so happy he took some time today to join me because it's been a lot of fun. And, and like I said, we had a lot of similarities along the way. Well, it was awesome to talk to you. I mean, I, we could literally talk for weeks. So uh, it's good talking to a guy that knows what he's talking about and enjoys goalies and enjoys the goalie life and enjoys like uh, good stories in hockey in general. We didn't even get to talk about your frosted tips and the goatees that we had in the late 90s. <laughs> One of the things that you got to do is you got to go on Hockey DB to uh, pull up some old teammates and see, you know, you just get, just remind yourself of where you've been and what you've done. And, and that's the first thing I saw was the frosted tips. <laughs> <laughs> the frosted tips. I don't know what I was thinking there, but uh, pretty comical anyway. How <laughs> many guys on your team actually had the frosted tips? Uh, I remember Homer, t- I remember, I remember I came with blonde hair. I don't know why I was. I don't know. I think I was in Pentic and I had my, I had my, uh, my oldest uh, boy in uh, hockey school at the time. We were in Pentic and I took my dad's trailer out there and, you know, he was busy on the ice all day. And I'm like, I think I want to get a little, maybe go, go blonde. So I went to this uh, salon <laughs> and got a full blonde do. Yeah. Yeah. So I got the camp with the camp was only like three weeks later. And I had this, I had this blonde hair that was still trying to grow out. <laughs> And the first person who saw me was Paul Holmgren. He was like, I, what's going on with your hair? <laughs> I said, ah, I just spent a little bit too much time in the sun, Homer. Don't worry. 
<laughs> that was common in the late 90s though man like so many guys would run that look <laughs> <laughs> my mine was by default i was trying to get rid of it but oh well yeah i got busted yeah uh, it's funny that somebody took a snapshot of it now i can't get rid of that that, that image yeah awesome awesome Thanks for listening to Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. Please make sure that you like, comment, leave a rating, subscribe, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.